0: Right relationship is a term term I learned, um, it's an indigenous term uh, that means um, to be in, you know, I guess the best word for it is symbiotic relationship with our surroundings and with each other, Um, a relationship that's mutually beneficial and recognizes that we need each other and that the needing is not a weakness, but actually a strength. capitalistic colonizer mindset would have us believe really otherwise. Um, The rugged individualism that this country was founded upon, and the colonial extraction mindset that um, this country was founded upon, um, really seeps into all of our layers of existence, all the way down to how we relate to each other interpersonally. Um, And so... In my work, I'm looking at how we are out of right relationship with the land and with each other and with ourselves uh, and how this, there's healing needed to have us restore that right relationship on all of these different layers of being a human.
1: Welcome to Jacqueline Explores, the podcast where we explore science, somatics, and social change. I'm your host, Jacqueline Shay. I am an embodiment coach, facilitator, researcher, and science communicator. After 10 years in public health and health tech, my own trauma healing journey brought me to somatics. In this podcast, I'll share the cutting-edge science and somatic frameworks and tools that change my life and will help you feel better, move through stress, heal trauma, and live the life of your dreams. But that's not all. I'll also highlight why and how most individual issues have systemic roots and the social change work being done and needed to create a world in which we can all thrive. Let's explore. Today I'm talking with Odessa Aviana Perez. She is a somatic psychotherapist, embodiment and social justice educator with a master's in somatic psychology from California Institute of Integral Studies and with over two decades of dance and contact improv experience. Her mission is to help folks heal trauma and find belonging and right relationship through deeper embodiment. She offers workshops and retreats throughout California and internationally, weaving relational learning with movement exploration and social justice frameworks. She has a psychotherapy private practice based in Los Angeles, aka Keats Tongva Land. She is the inclusion and belonging co lead for Soul Play Festivals, which is where I met her. Welcome, Odessa. It is such a pleasure to chat with you today. So great so, to be here,
0: Jacqueline. Thanks for
1: having me. <laughs> I want to jump right in with this concept of right relationship, which is so central to your work, both, you know, interpersonal and also this, these macro level issues that you help folks um, grapple with. So what is a right relationship? How are we not in right relationship in various areas of our life?
0: We are jumping right in. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so right relationship
0: is a turn term I learned, um, it's an indigenous term uh, that means um, to be in, you know, I guess the best word for it is symbiotic relationship with our surroundings and with each other, um, a relationship that's mutually beneficial and recognizes that we need each other and that the needing is not a weakness, but actually a strength. Uh, capitalistic colonizer mindset would have us believe really otherwise, Um, the rugged individualism that this country was founded upon and the colonial extraction mindset that um, this country was founded upon um, really seeps into all of our layers of existence, all the way down to how we relate to each other interpersonally. Um, And so in my work, I'm looking at how we are out of right relationship with the land and with each other and with ourselves uh, and how this there's healing needed to have us restore that right relationship on all of these different layers of being a human.
1: Mm. Mm. Wow. I'm wondering if you could go layer by layer how we're not in right relationship, because immediately as soon as you, like, ideas came for each one and starting with ourselves.
0: Yeah. Well, our relationship with ourselves from a psychological attachment level perspective, you know, it's in inexorably linked with our relationship with others, our personalities, our ways of being in the world are developed through our primary caretaker relationships um, from when we're infants and children and so it's hard to talk about just the self and our out of right relationship with the self without talking about those core relationships and how they shape us Um, you know uh, all attachment trauma and other kinds of developmental trauma are inherently, um, out of right relationship, uh, the way in which our, um, the way in which our parents cared for us and either responded to our needs or weren't able to, or judged our needs or, or made them seem unrealistic or un you know not not okay like all of those ways that our parents took care of us in the beginning kind of shape our reality of like our right to life our right to our own boundaries our right to our own needs our right to our own autonomy our, our right to our own feelings of sense of safety and connection and these are all just kind of the core principles of attachment um it's establishing a safe a, a safe enough sense uh, in order to feel able to go towards cure, what you're curious about and explore. And that's where that feeling for sovereignty comes. And so, in those early attachment relationships, um, depending on how our caregivers um, responded to us, we can either develop, uh, and this is oversimplifying, of course, but we can either develop um, hyper vigilance or fixation on safety and not feeling safe or on the desire to feel sovereign and on, on autonomous. And these show up later on in life in our personal relationships. And as a couples therapist, I see this all the time, you know, this push pull dynamic, if you're familiar with attachment theory, the anxious avoidant trap is what, a, you know, some pop psychology books mm-hmm. like to call it. And um, it's inherently this this fight <laughs> this struggle of um how do i in myself find right relationship with my needs and boundaries and feel safe enough to express them to another and be authentic with another with those so so this like right relationship piece is happening at this core level of safety and, auto- and autonomy and um that and how we feel about safety and autonomy, and how we've experienced that as a culture, and how we've, um, how, you know, different layers of systemic oppression have influenced us based on our identities, around our experiences of safety and autonomy, those are all existing at the same time as these attachments interpersonal layers are also existing
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean it's it's like it's not yeah it's not just what happens in the home but also how all those layers of of society of kind of like the ecological framework influence influence us and of course for some people it's like this this hmm yeah I want to ask you, but this sort of like grasping of like, maybe I can't be in right relationship with myself. So I overly need others versus that, like that. Yeah. That hyper individualist because it's not safe to be in right relationship with others.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And all of that is at its core, the way that I see it and other people may see it differently, but at, at its core, it really is this, this dance and this exploration of of needs and boundaries right like do i feel like i have a right to have boundaries do i feel like my
1: needs matter Mm -hmm. right
2: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah yeah and when you when you had originally brought up right relationship with ourselves where my brain went is this sort of idea of like uh, listening to our body and honoring it so if our body's saying hey i'm really tired Do we rest or do we have another cup of coffee? And like, what is, are we overly identified with the relationship to productivity as, as, you know, being worthy and sort of like, can we have the boundary of saying, I need to take a half sick day or I need to lighten my load today or whatever it looks like. Um, And yet to your point, it's like, that's not just actually a relationship with self. It's a relationship with culture and, and these macro level things.
0: Right. It's a it's a relationship with a capitalistic culture that rewards this so called productivity uh as being synonymous with your worth, really, right? And like money being so tied to your worth and value, uh, that it not only is it hard to listen to the voice that's like I need to rest or I need to take a half day, sometimes the the somatic entrainment that would even tell you what you need is not developed or is underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. Right. This like, I, I asked, um, on a Facebook post a couple months ago, like what's the number one thing that is keeping you from taking better care of yourself or, or tending to your self growth. And it was so many people were like the, this external validation, of the world that tells me I have to keep going. And mm-hmm. that external val- validation that can be with a culture, that can be with a partner, right? That like and external validation in and of itself is not a bad thing. We are social creatures, so we actually do need a certain level of like yeah. are, is this acceptable? Like are, am I going to get kicked out of the tribe if like I don't, right? Like there's a certain amount of that that's just baked in. Um But if it's not countered with this internal validation, this internal sense of, oh, that's what I need, like that knowing of that's what I need, then Mm -hmm. that's where burnout can happen and depletion and resentment and all kinds of things.
1: Yeah, yeah. And to go back to, you know, I think the idea of like symbiotic, which of course I think most of us, we think about that in in terms of nature and not realizing that um, everything is ideally – I mean, we are nature, but, you know, ideally everything has a symbiotic relationship. But it's sort of like – and maybe this isn't quite how it works, but if a tree doesn't have enough resources, it doesn't give to others, it actually might let itself receive resources. And yet, you know, what do we do? We just keep going and keep going and keep going. And it's like, you know, it's no fault of our own because – the, that internal signal has been pushed down because of what the dominant culture says is normal. And what you need to do is to have those external validation. Yeah.
0: yeah. <clears throat> and there's that cultural level. And then there's, as you were talking, I was thinking about in Hakomi, there's, um, there's something called a nourishment barrier. Hakomi is a somatic mm. um, counseling modality. Um, and uh there's so there's this concept nourish, nourishment barrier which is like i have learned how to go without the nourishment i need for so long yeah. that when it's actually here in front of me i don't know how to receive it yeah. and nourishment barriers show up for a variety of different reasons and show up in different ways for different folks but this is why one of the core principles of somatic work is about resourcing and about what makes you feel well, what makes you feel okay, what makes you feel regulated. And that's not a weakness. And I have to struggle with some of my clients around that, right? Because the capitalistic culture of like, and the Protestant ethic of like, I have to suffer in this lifetime is so ingrained that like, Mm -hmm. being kind to one's body and oneself is like, mind-blowing, you know? But in actuality, when we take the time to create that space for gentleness and kindness and rest and really checking in with what we need in our bodies, we're actually expanding our our foundation. And with that expanded foundation, we can actually show up more courageously. We have more In our stores to combat, heal, and integrate trauma, we have more capacity to show up resiliently in stressful situations. And this Mm -hmm. is so antithetical to our culture that it is something I spend a lot of time with a lot of clients. like, no, you deserve the rest. And it's literally part of your humanity to find that state of well-being.
1: Yeah. Every living thing needs to rest and why would we be any different? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that, um, using embodiment to help folks essentially grapple with white supremacy is part of your work and we haven't fully Mm -hmm. named it, but it's certainly been, it's certainly influencing all the things we're talking about. So can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about right relationship and white supremacy? Our, like, I'll just, yeah, Yeah. I'll open that up. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Just
1: a light, just a light question.
0: (laughs) For this conversation, I really, I really want to lean on somebody I've learned a lot from, which is Resma Menachem, who authored the book, My Grandmother's Hands, which I read in grad school and straight up changed my life. Um, And I got to meet him recently and and really thank him for that. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so Resma Menachem is a black somatic psychologist psychotherapist um, based out of Minneapolis. Um, He was doing anti-racist trainings um, in the Minneapolis police department before George Floyd happened. And so like he's an OG, (laughs) straight up OG with like a lot of uh, on the ground experience with this and lived experience. And his book is around um, black body, white body and police body trauma. And, the way that he has approached the the racial reckoning that is happening right now and that has been, you know, boiling under the surface for centuries and is at this level of reckoning now, he's framing it as a trauma problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And And one of the things that really opened me to find the resilience to do my own work around the part of my lineage that is European and has participated in white supremacy. Um, Part of what gave me the resilience to do that was the understanding that, Oh, this is a trauma response. This, this fragility, what Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility is actually a lack of resilience in the nervous system to deal with something, um, that privilege has allowed us to not have to confront
2: mm-hmm. but
0: the the real truth of it is that uh, this is what Resma says that i very much believe is that you know Europeans were able to colonize and and enslave other humans because that had happened to them and that trauma was living in their bodies right and so because if you think about it like what what creates that monstrosity what creates that yeah. um just total disconnect from other people's humanity mm-hmm. trauma right so um so mm-hmm. i have a mixed uh cultural background of european colonizers um Spanish colonizers who lived in Puerto Rico for hundreds of years and and Taino which is indigenous Puerto Rican lineage and so I have like I believe I have a lived experience of what white supremacy has done on both sides in my own body and if white folk actually track and trace their lineage back far enough We all have it because all of us had our indigeneity stripped at one time or another. Yep. Mine just happens to be a little bit sooner on the timeline, a little bit more recent on the timeline. And I witnessed and experienced the sort of aftermath of racism and how it impacted my grandparents' generation, my father's generation in New York City in the 40s and 50s and um, as, as Puerto Rican uh, transplants. And um, so so it's closer in to me the kind of necessities that they chose in order to survive under white supremacy. The sort of I'm going to assimilate. I'm going to lose the language. I'm going to lose all of the culture and just become white because I can. I can pass as white. I have that appearance and that's what's going to get me mm-hmm. ahead and the as I've done my own healing and somatic inquiry in myself, I can feel the layers of the intergenerational trauma of shame of who I am. Mm. That has been like unconsciously just sort of passed down in the dna um and also i'm not just gonna like hang in the negative there also like the incredible resilience and strength that my grandparents had to have to leave puerto rico from a farming existence when they were teenagers and become business owners in new york city you know, that strength Mm -hmm. and that resilience is in me too. And, and the grief of the loss of what they traded that for. And then what I lose because of that, it's complicated. It's both.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of complexity there. I care easily. So I'm I'm feeling that (laughs) like, I'm feeling that I'm feeling you. Um, and there's, there's a quote that I – oh, gosh, I used to, like, have it baked in me. But it's um, um Paulo Freire, and it's basically about, like, you know, if if we're just looking to kind of gain more power within a system, we will become the oppressor. We will shed our identities or our ways of being to gain power in a system because that's what it looks like. It's like, well, if I just have the money, if I just have the, you know, the – the the different immigration status or or whatever it is. And so when I hear you talking about like, if you go far back enough, it's like Mm
2: -hmm. some
1: of our ancestors, you know, that they might be oppressed in one, one decade, one year, one, but you know, where does that come from? And versus real liberation is changing that, that structure kind of being like, what if I didn't have to pick that path, which of course is not as easy, you know, said and done, but, I do think it's, you know, when our only idea of power is power over and not mm-hmm. power with, then of mm-hmm. course, you know, of course our ancestors might have have contributed to some of these, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's simple but not easy, right? And I think that this is yeah. like that, like rewiring the oppressive structures, <laughs> Is a really tall order. Will we get it done in <laughs> time for like to to not fully destroy the human race? I don't know, um, but I do think that trauma healing is core to us
2: being able to figure it out.
1: Well, there's two paths we could go down. Of course, I'm so curious about this concept of the resilient body and all that that means, how fragility shows up, what this real trauma healing looks like. But also, um, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey to this work. you shared kind of your ancestors' stories, um, a little bit of, uh, we've been teased with your own. Um, so curious which <laughs> which path you want to go down in this moment. <laughs>
0: I'm, I'm feeling like the the personal story because I think that it will sort of help frame out the work that I've yeah. shown up to do. <clears throat> um, so I think when I think about my uh, main influences in my life, um, I think about the fact that my parents met in a sufi community in england in the 70s um which is like seemed like a really wild place (laughs) and and there's there's a community of people all over the world still and there's um us sufi kids who are like the kind of second generation of people who were born from the people who are in this community and so I had an understanding of community from a really young age. I didn't grow up there, but I would go to the retreat center very often as a kid and as a teenager. And I had a ton of adult mentors around me, and who were thinking outside the box. And so I think that that really like established a core value of community for me from a very young age. Um, and then in college, I was a community organizer with a, a group called Tent State University for eight years. Um, and we developed a what we called a revolutionary democratic model of organizing um, that actually spread around the country a little bit. And is actually, we don't have any roots with Occupy Wall Street, but when Occupy Wall Street happened in 2011, that's what we were doing back in 2003. And it's kind of that zeitgeist, right? Like that, that spirit mm-hmm. of things. So that just kind of gives you an idea of what we were up to. And so I was involved in community organizing and in, we weren't calling it social justice back then, but in that kind of work from like my 20s on. And I got really, really disheartened. We ran a citywide election in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I went to Rutgers University for my undergrad. And we ran a citywide election campaign to change how the city council was elected so that it was more represented representational of the black and Latino communities that lived in New Brunswick. And we lost that campaign by nine votes. Mm. And I don't think that they played fair on the other side. And after that, that was 2009. I walked away from social justice work from political work. I was just like, this is exhausting. I can't, I cannot do this. And then I went into like healing work and um, found Theta Healing and found the power of, you know, um, changing our belief systems and how that can change our our lives. And I really changed my life in a big way that brought me to California and to, you know, exploring more of this sort of spiritual new agey, like woo-woo culture that is still really near and dear to my heart. And I have evolved to have some criticisms of. Um, And I went to grad school after a traumatic event happened to me. And I realized that the way that I was approaching healing work was missing this huge piece. After I experienced a trauma, I was like, oh my God, this is trauma. This is insane. Same. This is so intense. And I need to know more about this so that I can, you know, and so so in this way, it was like all of these different streams kind of led me to be a somatic therapist. I was also a, a dancer for years. I was a dance major in college and ran a dance company in Jersey City. And, you know, like, so all of these uh, paths kind of led me here to start to hash out how, how the body is the central place that all of this change can happen and how trauma thwarts our ability to dream and create and be curious and how we need each other to do this work, right? Like my roots in community in the beginning, it's like we cannot do this work in a vacuum. We need each other. And one of my one of my kind of loving critiques of the spiritual New Age festival culture that I am a part of that has been hugely influential in my life for the last 20 years, um, one of my critiques of it is that it's fulfilling this longing that we all have for community, but it's temporary community. And therefore, it is not allowing us to dig in and learn how to do the hard things together. And that is the bottom line, I think, of what is missing in Mm -hmm. all of the love and light, woo-woo culture that I affectionately, like, still have a
1: toe in, (laughs) you know? Yep. Mm. Wow. I resonate with so much of that, but especially what you just named, and I think for me that was part of why San Francisco. I I had to say goodbye to because I I was longing for community, and I did so much to like root in and try to build that community, and it felt like, oh, y'all want to be together for the ecstasy, and y'all want those that authentic relating that happens real deep, but is nothing afterwards. It's like a it's like a one night stand of authenticity. And you know you you know you guys want the essentially the commodified wellness version of of this work, and yet when it comes to the day to day, no one's really willing to show up for each other because most of you can afford to Uber Eats, most of you can afford to door to order your groceries, most of you don't need to really lean on others. So it's much more about like let's come and drink our tea and talk about this thing but like we're not in it together and that's what I that's what I yearn for and also that's what I know is what we need and mm. what like what is going to create a new world is like how do we really show up especially since these systems that we can try to reform but usually it doesn't work even when it does it's like you know and I think we learned that with covid is like there's only so much the government it's going to actually do for us. And so how do we show up for each other and God love some of those spaces and grateful for the gifts. And, you know, it's like, I I felt this like there's something more and like, yes, this is, it's so ephemeral and it's, but what about all those other layers of my life and what, you know, where are you guys there?
0: Yeah. Well said. I totally agree. It's, and we can really see all the layers again, right? It's like we don't know how to show up for the hard stuff. We are not trained in conflict resolution in rupture and repair processes. like I'm constantly teaching my couples how to how to fight better you know um and you know there's this extractive quality, this commodified quality this is the the real kind of essence underneath or one of the essences underneath um people calling in about cultural appropriation right it's like it's because there is this longing that western culture that you know people in the states i'll say in particular have for meaning and for ritual and for things that are like like deeper in right but there's no frame of reference for how to hold it in a good way Mm
1: -hmm. so
0: we we because we're living under colonizer mentality and capitalism unless we're really thinking about it and deprogramming these things in ourselves our go-to way is to extract something commodify it and like and dilute it down and when we dilute it down it's it it becomes this sort of surface level of like of like How even just like thinking like your, your thoughts are, you know, made manifest being distilled down to good vibes only, which is like one of the most (laughs) violent, toxic statements. Like, I just can't stand that statement, right? It's like, it's actually violent to, to, to just completely deny and exclude the mess, the hardship, the difficulty, the hard feelings, the conflict from our human experience. It's part of our human experience. We are on this plane. Earth is no joke. Okay, like if we want to go meta, meta dimensional here, like, this plane is really hard. <laughs> this planet, like, all of us who incarnated on this time line on this on this planet, like, I just want to give us all a round of applause for showing up like it's hard here. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason for us to explore that, like,
2: that richness of
0: human experience that includes all of that, you know? Um, One of the things that I learned in grad school, um, which, like, ah, the light bulb turned on and I was like, thank you. I've been, that's the thing. Um, and I think it was my professor, Marsha Hiller, um, who shared this with her, with us that, you know, so somatic psychotherapy is, is relatively new. I think it started developing in like the eighties or something along that timeline. And, um, Marsha was saying that catharsis was this new thing in the sixties and seventies that people were exploring, right? Okay so we're we're having these rage workshops or we're having these like learning how to scream or we're having these like big like emotive processes that are bringing us into a different state of consciousness that it was believed was healing or was supportive or was helpful and then as somatics became more of a thing and as trauma informed care became more of a, of a thing we realized that catharsis doesn't stick around it mm-hmm. it's like a valve that like lets off steam but it doesn't integrate the the feelings or the trauma for us trauma integration is a different thing and it's not about like totally blowing our lid and losing consciousness in some state of ecstasy or big emotion it's actually about staying one foot resourced one one mm-hmm. piece in the body and integrating the experiences and if we're not mm-hmm. integrating these big experiences then there's not actually any big change happening and yep. i'm not going to speak for like everyone or all the dance communities or anything but i do think that there is a big kernel of truth here for the new age dance communities that you and i are a part of that are you know like the, the quote-unquote conscious dance communities, I think were really born out of this catharsis movement. And these dance communities have been hugely influential and like a place of my own becoming, and I'm forever grateful for them. And so I'm not, I'm not saying anything bad about that catharsis. I've had plenty of moments where I'm like, wow, I really needed that. And like, I feel different now and I can go about my day. I'm a little bit more in my body. Mm-hmm. but on the whole the movement has kind of i think unconsciously clung to this good vibes only this catharsis centric this this focus on the expansive and all oh. of, and continually expanding just just want the expansive feelings and has no way of being with the contraction Like, Mm -hmm. foundationally, structurally, these dances don't hold a place for the contraction. They don't hold a place for communities to come and talk together and be like, "Mm, this isn't working for me because this, this and this, right? There's like nothing baked in that is allowing us to be in the hard work, right? Yeah. And I don't think that's true of all the dances. And I I don't think that I'm the only one who's thinking about this. But I do think that that is one of the problems we are running into in this new age culture that really means well and really like wants this progression of our consciousness and wants and understands the power of embodiment and dance but is missing this core really important piece. We cannot leave our trauma behind. We cannot leave our dark parts behind or our shadow behind. How do we dance with that? How do we be with that Mm -hmm. and include that?
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Plus a thousand to everything you just said. And as you were (laughs) saying that my brain also was like, this also applies for breath work, um, which I think is an area that I felt a little like, Hey, like, yes, there's, there's powerful alchemy. And, and yes, you can, you can really move some stuff that might feel deep within, but that's, it, it's, it's not the only way. And it's also not sufficient in and of itself from, from where I'm standing. And for many people it can actually be re-traumatizing or profoundly dysregulating to only do the cathartic work without that resourcing that you talked about, without that nourishment, without that integration afterward, without being deeply held in your experience, even if your experience wasn't like, oh my God, and I had this, and now I feel so much better, you know, and like, and how you can feel perhaps even more broken if that's Mm -hmm. not your experience. And Mm -hmm. yes, these types of tools have their place, but it's often within a broader web, a broader framework, and being deeply held and, and so much of my work is often the small tender parts. It's like, oh, let's put, let's put your hands on your heart. And like, let's hold that part, you know, like mm-hmm. that's often the baby step needed before you can have that profound catharsis. And yet, you know, going back to, yeah, kind of like right Right relationship with our body, I think we're for often when folks are like, okay, I want to heal, it's like, well, I have to do it fast, I have to do it hard, I have to do it big, and it it's not working unless it's you know, it's all of those things. And mm-hmm. yet, oof, you know, and that's <laughs>
0: nothing's further from the truth, actually. And I mean, I get that a lot. Like I work with quite a bit of um attachment trauma and sexual assault trauma um in my private practice and um you know there's like and and like why wouldn't there be there's like this desire to just like get it off get it out like i don't want to like right and of course of course this is it's so tremendously challenging mm-hmm. to even begin to learn how to be with the atrocious things that have happened to us you know And so a lot like that's, again, the resourcing, like, like building that capacity to be with what's, what's hard. And, you know, one of the things I love saying in, in, in my private practice is like, the somatic work is slow, but it's slow because sometimes it's just like that. Yeah, Something will shift just like that. But you have to go slow to have that shift happen. Um, in the words of Bio, all Kumalafe, the layers. Yeah. One of my other favorite thinkers these days, Bio Kamalafe, says um, Times are urgent. We must slow down.
1: Mm. Mm. Times are urgent. We must slow down. Yeah. Yeah. The fastest way to get where you want to go is to slow down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. The somatic paradox.
2: hmm Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well, you, um, you've you touched on this and everything you've said men- mentally for me has touched on this, of the idea of what is a resilient body? What is a fragile body?
2: Mm-hmm. 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 hmm mm Yeah.
0: So from the nervous system perspective, a resilient nervous system is one that can move in and out of different nervous system states with ease. So that means that it can uh, move from regulation, also called the social engagement system or the, the ventral vagal part um, which if you're wanting to be a polyvagal nerd that <laughs> those are the terms um, so moving from that regulated place uh, to dysregulation that happens in stressful moments, either you know the fight and flight in the sympathetic nervous system or the freeze and collapse that happens in the dorsal vagal system um, that We make use of all of these different nervous system states of the mobilized states and the immobilized states throughout our day, really. And that moving through these states, getting triggered mildly or otherwise, like that's not a bad thing. In fact, being able to move through those states and come back to a state of whatever your regulated state is that's resilience from the nervous system perspective. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for? So what? So then, what's fragile? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, this is a complicated question. Okay, the first thing I'm I'm thinking about is I have a really dear friend um, who lives in a mountain town that I used to live in, um, and I went and I lived in this mountain town for two years after my traumatic event happened and like needed like needed the mountain vibes to like heal my nervous system. And like, like it took me a full seven months to reset and like feel like settled. And, um, and then I just had like a really beautiful time feeling like connected in community and like being in a beautiful mountain town. And then eventually I moved back to the city and went to grad school and blah, blah, blah. And, um, This mountain town, like when George Floyd happened and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement really started picking up pace, the community that me and my friend were both a part of really started to show its true colors of like a lot of like under the surface racism started to emerge from some folks. And it was like heartbreaking and it was shocking and it was like, oh, but also, of course, like. It was like you know, and and a lot of this kind of um, really a lot of really intense conversations erupted, you know, on Facebook and otherwise, and um, a lot of defensiveness show showed up, which is part and parcel with like you know what Robin DiAngelo talks about in terms of white fragility and being confronted with privilege and white supremacy, and and what the what the body and nervous system does with that, um, all this defense, right, that can be quite aggressive at times. And my friend asked me, we were on the phone talking about it one day, and she was like, I don't understand why, like, we all live in this beautiful mountain town. We have all of this nature as resource. We are regulated all the time. We feel good all the time. Why, when this stuff comes, like, do we go zero to 60? Do people just, like, totally blow their lids and, like, you know, get really defensive and really into their sympathetic or whatever? And I was like, because they're not used to it, because they're used to being in like this, everything is perfect, everything is okay, everything is fine place. And I'm entitled, that starts to come in there, like unconsciously, Mm. I'm entitled to this level of comfort. That Mm -hmm. when something uncomfortable, and honestly, I feel like calling it discomfort is like, half the story, because it's actually triggering really deep old trauma, as we already discussed, right? Yeah. So when the, this discomfort comes in, when this like, questioning of your right to that level of comfort comes in, there's nothing in the body and nervous system that knows how to handle it, because you've just been in this cool place where, where your survival hasn't been threatened, your your right to life hasn't been threatened, your right to your identity hasn't been been threatened, right? And so a little thing like a not so little thing but like a non date like an actually not threatening not dangerous thing a question that's being mm-hmm. asked is then interpreted by a nervous system that is not prepared hasn't been in the practice of it who that's fragility when our nervous system doesn't have the capacity doesn't have the lived experience, doesn't have the know-how to be in a stressful situation. Right. And on the other hand, like, this is where it gets complicated around, like, what access to safety you had, depending on your identity and depending on where you grew up and where you live and all of that. Right. And like, uh, the other side of the coin that I want to touch on that, I think gets missed, represented sometimes as you know black and brown communities that have lived in you know dangerous circumstances and have had to like live under a constant state of threat and had to build that resilience and had to um maybe stay in chronic states of um fight, flight or freeze, right? And and then they get called resilient. And it's like, oh okay, white people are fragile and people of color are resilient. And it's like but also that's not fair to anybody (laughs) and like resilient at the cost of what? And are we like calling these folks resilient so that we can like make it okay systemically that this is happening, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. So there's just, and I've heard folks talk about this aspect of like resilience being used as an excuse. And so I want to be really clear that I'm not doing that and that, yeah. My focus here is around like can we understand the fragility the like as a defense mechanism that needs support in order for people to deal with anything that's hard? We're talking about race right now, but like again, this is where the layers are there's relational aspects to it, right mm-hmm. um. I can talk about in terms of gender roles too. Like, you know, the internet likes to talk about weaponized incompetence. I don't know if you've heard this whole thing around men in mm-hmm. heterosexual men and heterosexual relationships having like weaponized incompetence. And I think the vast majority of those men are maybe not conscious of it. I've just like had a lack of, education experience like right and it's a cultural issue it's how we've culturated men and boys you know and so it's like and i have some dear male friends that i've called in about this and been like i want to be in relationship with you around this because like we all nobody wins under patriarchy like it's not i know you don't love feeling incompetent here you know so i think It's like, can we just kind of look at how our nervous systems have organized around our life experience has been very much influenced by our identities? And can we be kind with each other about like how we heal that up and how we transform? Like our nervous systems are, are adaptable and changeable.
1: So we, we can change all of this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much there. Thank you for that nuance. Thank you. And yeah, I want to, you know, plus one, the, the, the whole calling a group calling an individual resilient when what they really had was a lack of fucking options. It's like they had to deal yeah. deal with the cards that were dealt and, you yeah. know, post-traumatic growth is real, but also let's not use that as, um, a way to kind of excuse what happened and also what didn't happen and resources that weren't there and oppression that shouldn't exist. Um, And, you know, what's interesting is, yes, it's sort of like, I, I do think a lot of white people are able to, and people who just have privilege in different ways, which of course can mean you don't have privilege in some ways and you do in others, but you can kind of have this like faux resilience, like you were saying, which is, I can be regulated as long as I don't have to face this hard shit that I'm privileged, that I have the, the privilege within this system of. And then as soon as I do, ah, that's too much Or like, okay, I'll deal with it, but I'm going to have so much grief over this that I'm going to then make other people do labor for me. And I'm, I may be not able to process it and hold it myself or with the appropriate people. And that can still be a level of fragility. Um, and just, you know, this is something I want to do an episode on is, you know, there's a the concept of allostatic load, which is like the, this nervous system kind of essential, essentially the the effects of chronic dysregulation, that fight or flight yeah. or that freeze. And um, the differences in this by racial groups has been well studied and it yeah. starts off at a very young age and it just grows and grows and grows over the lifetime. And it contributes to heart disease, high blood pressure, stroke like all of yep. these real health conditions and then premature death. Yes. And so, yes, a group can be resilient because they had to be, and there's real wear and tear on the system because it's it's working so hard in order to thrive or to just survive within the system. Um, exactly. uh, so those are a few things I wanted to sort of add in. Yeah, thanks, yeah. For
0: that. I love the you bring in the science about the Allistock Load and the, you know, the different groups because my brain like thinks about those things or receives those things and I can never (laughs) repeat them. So I love that you've got that like on the ready.
1: Yeah. It's, I, um, I was was recently in St. Louis where I'm from and helping my mom. Um, She's in the process of selling her home. And, you know, I have all these books from college there, which she's lovingly has for a while. (laughs) And one of them was on health disparities. And I open and there's a thing on allostatic load. And it was so cool to be like, wow, that seed was planted back then as I thought about it in this systematic, you know, systemic way. And then now I'm really thinking about it still systemically, but I'm working a little bit more, I'm working just in a different way. And um, so the beauty of the things that are being studied through one lens and then somatics is really bringing it in and saying, here's the tools, here's yeah. the, real, here's what we need so that we can actually change this instead of just going, oh, gee, this is a thing. Yeah. Yeah, Which kind yeah. of brings me to th- these questions of like, how how do we increase our resilience? Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. grapple with things like white supremacy and all the isms to show up in more right relationship with others with self
0: yeah yeah i mean um the the dance technology that i've been developing uh and have offered that you participated in at soul play is called resilient body and um it's um it's um a, a trauma informed dance journey that is designed to help uh the the privileged body um build more resilience to be in the discomfort of challenging that right build some more of the resilience from this fragility um and so it's an embodiment practice a dance practice because it's about not just recruiting the bodies like strength, resilience, um, resource, um, wisdom, but about working with this kind of place in the nervous system that we each go when we're confronted with something unfamiliar or something that either like triggers our trauma or like, Edges us towards it? And how do we stay? How do we work with that edge and bring more resource to it? And in that way, expand our window of tolerance or our ability to stay in regulation during these stressful or uncomfortable moments. Um, and again, I'll quote Resma Menachem here. Um, uh, one of the trainings I did with him was actually like two days before I brought resilient body to soul play in 2022, which was, I think like the first time I, I offered this, this dance journey. And he was working with, it was a mixed race space, but he was talking to the white folk and he was like, can you feel the edge between peril and possibility? Ooh. And that's exactly the place where we build the resilience, right? And so I've found it in myself and I, I'm in, in the resilient body practice. I'm bringing people into a state where they can be on that line, on that edge for themselves, where I'm safe enough that I can think about possibility, right? There's that autonomy and safety thing dance that we were talking about before. I'm safe Mm -hmm. enough that I can be in my creativity, my imagination, my possibility. But I'm also including in that this part of me that feels in absolute peril. Mm -hmm. There's actually not absolute peril happening, but that's how trauma works. Right? It recalls yep. the time when the peril was happening, and it's like it's happening right now in the body. Right? And so, in the stance practice, we're building resources within ourselves and in community with each other to be on that
2: edge of peril and possibility. Mm, yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that, that dance, that line between those two is where, where the big transformation happens because we can't face the peril if we don't have possibility. And if we're just in possibility, we're usually not actually solving the problems that need to be solved. (laughs) Right.
0: And, you know, we're not in full reality.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah.
2: Hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a there's a really important aspect of doing this work together, doing this work Mm -hmm. in community. Right. And I mean, like we already talked about, like, what does it mean to do this work in community in a in a society that like really does not make it easy for us to be in community long term? Really? Like we have like the reason why these festivals and one of the reasons why these festivals and retreats are so popular is because we're all craving that community. We cannot figure out how to do it long-term. Like who's got like $2 million to buy land and like build houses on for all your friends. Cause I've had that dream for a long time with some of my friends. Right. But it's like mm-hmm. the current economic system is making that really challenging for the vast majority of us.
1: Yeah. I actively have that dream and I live in a place where a lot of people have that dream and it's, it feels just out of reach. And especially if you are not, you know, a techie who's making a shit ton of money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if kind of our last bit of discussion here could be around that question of interdependence versus mm-hmm. maybe Hyper hyper independence and that codependence.
2: And
1: those sort of three different buckets that we can often find ourselves dancing between. And maybe most Mm -hmm. of us are not ever in that interdependence bucket.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the big focuses for me in my deprogramming from white supremacy and colonizer mentality is.
2: Being in the question, what does it mean to be interdependent?
0: Like, what does that actually look and feel like? And I, and I think the important thing here is to assume that I actually don't know inherently because it's not been reflected in my upbringing, in culture right there's very few places where we can turn to and be like oh that's interdependence so mm-hmm. being in the question is a way of kind of inviting in that wisdom that you know if we had a a deeper relationship with land and place we might be able to witness that happening in nature right like we might be able to like really let that wisdom in that like it's kind of a truth of the planet that we live on that we're not relating to right mm-hmm. um yeah as a as a recovering codependent myself i think i had to learn this was this was a hard lesson to learn that like codependence all different ways of being codependent are actually inherently manipulative it's codependence exists from a from a belief structure that um my needs and benefit my my needs and boundaries are not okay not acceptable Mm -hmm. and so then i have to rather than just show up authentically first step one know what those needs and boundaries are which we already talked about that's hard right Step two, show up authentically in our relationships and be honest about what the needs and boundaries are. Step three, that person doesn't judge them or tell us that they're wrong or that we're bad because of them, right? We got a lot of work to do. So I think Mm -hmm. with codependence, it's like I'm, 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 doing a whole song and dance either internally by myself or in relation to another human um, or both at the same time, that is really in essence, an argument that I'm having with myself around whether my needs and boundaries are, are valid just the way they are. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've sort of, come to really see in all of my work with couples is like, in codependence, there's a fundamental belief that we can't both get what we need at the same time.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And if I'm giving you what you need, that's inherently going to drain me. Right. So it's like this yeah. belief that like the giving is, is this expenditure or is this like drain or is this sacrifice or is this burden? And it's like, it is when it's in a codependent dynamic, but when it's in an interdependent dynamic, there's actually something that Stan Taken calls uh, interactive regulation. Mm. Right, we are both. It's not me co-regulation. Um, like, is not just. It's not just like me regulating you, and then you regulate. Okay, mm-hmm. now you regulate me. It's interactive. We are both able to offer regulation and receive at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
1: and yeah, I agree with what you. It started with saying it's just that nature can be a way in which we can actually look and see examples of interdependence that are really hard to see in this human society because we've, yeah, you know, squashed most of it. Um, and for me, I th- I've learned the most from from nature and really saying, "Wow, every living thing here plays its part, and it gives and it takes, and it's all reciprocal." And actually, none of this can exist without the other. And yeah. and I love the part where, um, I don't know if you said this or if my brain just said it, but um, uh, I think my brain said it, is this idea that like I can communicate my needs and desires, and I can actually be okay with you not being able to meet them, versus yep. I need you to meet them. I like I'm or I don't have other people I can look to. I can't look to them myself, or it's not even okay. Or you know, just all of that. But also, like you said, it takes knowing your needs and desires. It takes just there's so much work here, and I, I really believe this is a lifelong process. And for some people, it's you know, even just like like that nourishment. Like, can you actually receive the deep care of others? Can you receive rather than not just give? Because it gives that external validation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Right. Right. Yeah. All of this mm. stuff is simple but not easy, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> it's not even that mm-hmm. simple. It's
0: pretty
1: complex sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and all of it is is, you know, yes, you kind of work. You, whether in therapy, in a workshop, in a course, listening to a podcast like this, where you get a light bulb and you feel differently, but it is that continual sensing, feeling, communicating, building those skills, riding that edge of peril and possibility of of expanding that window of tolerance, and that over time, then it does become easier. And there are ways in which you know, like I'm personally experiencing, um you know, a really beautiful romantic relationship. And it's because of the years of struggle and the years of facing my anxious attachment and the years of being like, how do I ask for what I need? How do I know what I need? And like all of that. And, yeah. and yet all of a sudden the right person, the right time, the, the, the skills, the awarenesses have kind of solidified in your system and it can be different and you will still have rupture and you will still get triggered. And all of that will still happen because we are humans and it's going to happen until we die. And it's not a problem that
0: it's happening, right? No, It's like, yeah, I mean, you're saying like you're experiencing this like new level in your romantic relationships and your romantic relating and that part of your learning is like oh i can ask for a need and it's okay if that doesn't get met right like that's totally part of the journey and like also like my like my version of that is like knowing that I don't need to stick around if my needs and boundaries aren't being respected over and over and over and over again, or even just like a little bit, like I just said goodbye to a very casual thing where I was like very brief. And I was like, you know, I don't want to teach you how to respect women. Not my job, Mm -hmm. you know? And like, but again, the, the, the thing is, is the same. It's like, I'm no longer hooked into needing you to do something for me. It's like, oh, you're not doing that thing for me? Okay, bye. Like, (laughs) actually, you know, writing on the wall, those are a couple of red flags. And I'm not, like, that's enough information that I don't need to stick around to hope that you change Mm -hmm. or do it differently, right? Because Mm -hmm. the need to have someone else offer that to me is finally less than the need the the, the ability I have to offer it to myself yep. but the needs don't necessarily go away because we're social human like it's not about not having needs
2: mm-hmm. it's about
0: being in right relationship with the needs and being able to be in a negotiating process with whoever you're relating to that mm-hmm. actually works for the two people
1: yep yep Yeah. And to go back to the nervous system, um, you know, it's it sounds like you were able to instead going into this um sympathetic, into this um fawning, into this like, oh, what what can I do for you to so you want to meet my needs. (laughs) Um, you're like, Oh, you know what? I'm actually just gonna stay regulated. I don't I don't need this. Bye. Like, thanks for the time together
0: because it's actually more complicated than that. And I forgot to say that part. Mm-hmm. I actually did fawn with this person and I had a whole wave of feelings because my yeah. trauma response got got nicked. But the difference is I have more regulation in my nervous system to be able to go through the wave and be like, oh, that's what that is. That was hard. Mm-hmm. But like even just witnessing that, like I had that emotional wave is information for me that like, that's too much work. I don't want to do, but the emotional wave itself isn't the problem. It's the information and it's the, the nervous system's capacity to move through that. Whereas in previous, not so healthy relationships, I would just be chronically stuck in the fond state. Right. So again, it's like, we don't need to avoid going into these, uh, stress responses. We just build the resilience to move through them quicker.
2: Mhm. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Cuz we will get put into those responses and it's more about what is this telling me about myself, about the other person, about how we're relating and it's not to say, yeah. you know, don't be in a relationship with someone who triggers you, but it's like is there enough security? Is there enough are we compatible you know are, are are we able to process do i actually am i able to generally feel regulated and not be in one of those responses with you and mm-hmm. you know also how do you show up when when i have this response can can you be maybe present without It triggering your shit or, you know, which it might, but like triggering it enough where perhaps you pull away or just like, what is this dance between us? And I've experienced that recently. I've been going through so much change in my nervous system. It felt like every other day it was like totally constricting, totally bracing. And while I used to get stuck there and while I used to be, oh, well, this is how the world is. (laughs) Nothing's working. Now I'm like, oh, yeah, we're scared, aren't we? There's a lot of uncertainty happening right now, isn't there? There's a lot of change. Baby, okay? Let let me let me give you some tender (laughs) care. And then guess what? I get to the other side much quicker and I don't make it wrong that I'm in that constriction.
0: Yeah. That's right.
1: Nice work. (laughs) Mm, Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I was myself on the back a lot. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've covered so much ground today. Is there anything Mm. else you feel like we haven't uncovered that stone that you really wanted to? To look underneath
0: yeah I mean nothing in particular is coming to mind I'm just like really I'm really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you about how these different layers intersect right and For for me, thinking about all of these layers together—the cultural, the interpersonal, the in in, intrapersonal, the just me—it's it's a pathway for liberation. It's um,
2: and you know,
0: I come across some people who have a very sort of like optimistic mindset or they're like, no, just focus on like what's good kind of thing. And now these days I, instead of just like pot, like blanketly being like, no, we have to be in the hard stuff. I actually pause and I consider their identities, their humanity, what they've been through, like maybe looking towards the positive is the most resilient move that they can make. Right. Like, I was having a conversation with somebody uh, earlier this year as a white cis man, and he was, like, really excited about what he had just learned, which was, like, how he needs to, like, slow his role about what he thinks truth is and, um, and really, like, pause and consider, like, other people's truth might be different. But the way that he was so excited about it and the way he was talking about it, he was using we language like, yeah, we all just really need to like, you know, like not take our truth so seriously and and not like, um, you know, be so firm in our beliefs and like create some space to consider other people's whatever's. And I was like, you know, that's really good for you in your skin and your body for me. Somebody who's been acculturated and told more often than not that because I'm a woman, I don't, my like thoughts or opinions don't matter or they matter less. I actually need to do the work to fortify my own truth. Right? As somebody who's been in relationships where gaslighting has been happening, I actually need to do the work to validate my own reality more and validate other people's reality less. And that it's everything to do with my experience and my identity. Right. And so it's like, you know, everything that we've talked about today might not be everyone's cup of tea and that's okay. It's like, if this pathway works for you, then yes. And you know, it's not going to like being in the dif- dis- difficultness and being in the discomfort and being in the learning all of that may be not the right thing for you or not the right thing for you right now, you know? But I think for the yeah. vast majority of people who are holding any kind of privilege within their intersecting identities, it's really important to think about these aspects of trauma and discomfort and resilience building and to know the difference between this isn't for me or I'm letting myself off the hook.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Am I, am I not facing what's uncomfortable? What feels hard or is it really not my work to do? And often, yeah. the more privilege you have, I hate to break it to you, but you, there's probably more work to do. <laughs> and maybe yeah. not in this moment, you know. Take your mm-hmm. bite-sized pieces. We have a lifetime of work ahead of us, and and certainly um, uh, feeling like you have to figure it all right now is a sign that you're insympathetic. So it's like, yeah, how can yeah. we slow down? And you know, how can we be in right relationship with the type of um, healing? an awareness building that, that we all need to do in order for our world to have less suffering that could be avoided.
0: Yeah. I meant to that. Yeah. Wow.
1: Well, this has been such a good conversation.
0: Agreed. It's been Mm.
1: such a pleasure. Um, and I know you have a practice for us. Um, but first I want to ask, mm-hmm. um, how folks can work with you, which you, there's awesome links below your website, social media, so that they'll be in the show description, but what are current ways if someone was like, Oh my gosh, this is the person for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I currently have like one or two openings, um, for, uh, a uh one-on-one therapy or I, I'm full with couples at this time, but I'm I've got one-on-one therapy available for California residents or um a somatic coaching program on embodied relationship. Um so I've got one or two spots open for that currently and that kind of changes, you know, um with time. Um We're still working on dates, but um, there will be a Dance Your Medicine retreat in Costa Rica in November of 2024. Um, Around that time, uh, I collaborate with uh, Ren Lafitte, who founded CoCrea Partner Dance, um, and Natasha Richards, who's an amazing yoga instructor, um, and there may be others joining us. Um, It's a whole retreat on dancing and right relationship um that we do at this amazing center in costa rica and then um i'll be starting up some in-person workshops and classes in los angeles um some of them will be collaborations that are too soon for me to announce or talk about in any kind of uh detail but um i'll be doing some you know Resilient Body is going to come to LA and also the work I do around attachment and through a contact improv and embodiment lens, um, those workshops will will be coming. So the best way to like stay tuned with all of that is to either get on my mailing list, which you can get to uh, from my website or follow me on Instagram uh, or both.
1: Yeah. And I, I really want to plug the soul play festival, which I think the main one happens in June in California, but my sense is there's other events and you're the inclusion and co-lead for inclusion and belonging. And you facilitate, I know a few workshops, which are just outstanding. And I will say, you know, I've never been to a festival that put that much care into trying to make sure that folks of all identities felt like they belonged and that there were processes. If, something happened. And, you know, literally you, you come in and before you can, before you can, you know, go find your campsite, you're told all about the resources, all about consent, all about, you know, a bunch of things that I've just never experienced in that type of space. So thank you for your work there. And if, if folks are interested in things like dance and nature and sensuality, Soul Plays for you.
0: Yeah. Thanks for plugging that. I can't believe I forgot that. (laughs) Yeah, Soul Play is like hands down my favorite <laughs> festival. And it's really exciting um, to see the kind of like cutting edge work we're doing around inclusion and belonging in these conscious community spaces. Yeah. Mm.
2: Well, I believe you
1: have a somatic practice for us.
0: I do. So this is one that um, I call straight spine soft front body. Um, and it's it's kind of connected in with a lot of things that we've been talking about today. So I uh, will lead us in this practice that won't take too long. Um let's just find a, a comfortable seat. Um, or if you prefer to do this standing, um, that's also an option. And so If you're seated or standing, just feeling the points of body that are in contact with the ground or the chair, kind of allowing these to be your anchor points,
2: feeling how your bony structure is holding you up, feeling the density of your bones. that solidity, that strength and how
0: the bones are really just spiraling together under layers of muscle and fascia and skin. See if you can really just like lean back into that structure in you. And letting that be the kind of core central place in you right now. And so as your bones are holding your, you up. What of your muscles can you let go? Just notice if there's any tension being held in your jaw or your shoulders, legs, arms.
2: And so you're simultaneously feeling structure of the bones, and the suppleness of the muscles. Bringing your attention to your spinal column
0: and its relative straightness. We know the spine is actually a curve. Just find that kind of rightness. In that curve in your spine and and that uprightness, that all of those articulating bones, technically cartilage, okay, (laughs) all of that is just
2: supporting you
0: and holding you up. And notice what stabilizing muscles in your deep core are also in the assist here, also a part of this. And maybe feeling some muscle engagement in your back body. So there's this firm, strong stance happening from your sits bones or your feet, if you're standing, all the way
2: up your back body. This is your trueness right here.
0: And as you're in that alignment with yourself, whatever that alignment is for you that makes you feel strong and stable, bringing your attention to your front
2: body, And
0: letting anything that needs to soften here soften. Anything that is willing to soften. And maybe there's not a whole lot that wants to soften, and that's okay. Just notice that. And see if there's one tiny place where
2: you can soften even just 1%. Again, going to the back body, remembering that strength and alignment there. And if your eyes are closed,
0: just flutter them open and have a soft gaze and practice this kind of soft receptiveness of receiving the information through your eyes. Not searching, but just. Letting the information in through the eyes, sort of soft eyeballs. I like to think of my eyeballs as being kind of rested back in their sockets, releasing tension around my eyes and head. And so feeling that softness and that strong, straight spine back body. Anything that I filter through my eyes, through my soft front body, gets filtered through the straight spine, this alignment.
2: And I get to feel if that works for me or not.
0: Maybe take a look around the room a little bit and notice how that straight spine feels as you take in different things. I'm taking in my ukulele and that enters into my back body with some sparkles and joy. I look towards my laundry pile that hasn't been done,
2: something different happens.
0: letting that information move through you and returning back to that straight spine, that alignment, that strong back body.
2: Maybe just give that a little wiggle as we come out of this.
0: <sighs> it's noticing any state shift that might happen there. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Little state shift you got there, Jacqueline.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, definitely softened. <laughs> it felt really good to feel into my spine and where I was held, and then the other parts of me could soften. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's like. It's, it's like, where can we find the solidity, the surety in ourselves so that we can relate with the rest of the world without all of that rigidity, right? But that it, mm-hmm. it can, information from the world, we can receive it, we can be in relationship with it, but we don't collapse or get j- yanked around by it, right? Yep. There's this inner
1: integrity yeah. that we're continuing to tend to. Mm -hmm. Or be so braced that we can't receive it. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. I will be doing that one again. Awesome. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for that practice and for this really rich conversation.
0: My pleasure. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me and for joining in Resilient Body and being brave and showing up to that work and continuing to show up to the work that you do.
2: Mm, Thank you.
1: All right. That's it for today's episode. If you enjoyed what you just heard, found it valuable and want to keep exploring with me, please click follow to help others learn about this. Make sure to give me a five-star rating, write a review and share it with all your people. To learn more about my work, go to JacquelineExplains.com and sign up for my email list so that you can receive life-changing somatic practices in your inbox. See you next week!